0: This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society, Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everybody, this is Dennis Madelon, the stunt coordinator from Star Trek The Next Generation, Space Nine, and Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM.
1: Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Justin Ozer. Richard and Amy are away this week, but I will be bringing you a great interview today. First, we have some Babel Conference feedback, For Earl Grey 271, that's Deleted Scenes Part 1. So Michelle Huber says, In every show, there are deleted scenes that would have made an episode either amazing or terrible, so I believe there's a 50-50 chance that directors and editors will inadvertently alter the viewer's perception of an episode or movie. A few notes. In The Schizoid Man, Troy senses anger and hostility from Data, who isn't Data at that point, and that's the only time in an aired episode where Troy sensed something from him that I can remember. Oh, that, and when he also felt anger thanks to Laura's Bluetooth emotions. I do have to say that I love the uncut version of The Measure of a Man. Also, I wish they kept at least part of that birthday scene, because I think that Worf and Data did not get enough scenes together. However, at the same time, I am kind of glad that that part was cut, because it would bother me that Worf doesn't know how old he is. Wouldn't he need that information to get into the Academy, or would they make an exception for an orphan who's the first Klingon to ever apply? Well, thank you, Michelle, for your comments. Uh, lots of great notes there, and glad you enjoyed the episode. So we also have Babel Conference feedback for Earl Grey 272, which was favorite badass Beverly Crusher moments that Amy and I talked about. So Christopher Bacchus says some really good choices. I don't like the scene in First Contact where Crusher just seems to fold, just so the plot can give the confrontation to Lily, when it should have been Beverly since she can relieve Picard of command. It would have made the confrontation even more personal. Yeah, Christopher, that's definitely... A great point it should have been beverly to to kind of push for that confrontation so randy congdon says i'm happy you spent an entire episode on dr crusher invariably when a series features an ensemble cast one or more characters do not get their fair share of exposure beverly seems to be the victim of this in tng there were some episodes where the writer seemed at a loss to work her into the story and just gave her a token line or two you refer to the other doctors in star trek most of whom seem to have more episodes centering around their respective characters than does Crusher. Thanks for highlighting just how important she is to the franchise. Thanks, Randy. So glad that you enjoyed the episode. And yeah, it was really great to do a whole episode on Dr. Crusher because, yeah, I think sometimes she doesn't get enough attention or exposure in the series and the movie, so it was great to talk about her. Corey Elrod says, I've never thought about Crusher being a badass, but y'all did a great job coming up with moments. I've always loved her as the motherly doctor. I'll have to watch her in a different light from now on. Well, excellent. Glad you enjoyed the episode, Corey, and that uh, you'll take a look at Dr. Crusher in a new light. That was one of the things we were looking for. And Brandon Shamatala says, I would definitely put the arsenal of freedom on my list. She's suffering through shock and fighting off falling into unconsciousness, and she's still able to walk Picard through making a splint and making a coagulant. Absolutely, Brandon. That's a really great moment. I hadn't uh, put it on my list, but yeah, an arsenal of freedom. <laughs> She's really fighting through a lot and is able to help Picard with what, what he needs in, in kind of helping his own healing process. So that's a fantastic moment. Well, thanks everyone for your Babel Conference feedback, and let's head right into the interview. Today on Earl Grey, we have a special guest, Dennis Madalone, who performed many stunts and roles in Star Trek and was the stunt coordinator for The Next Generation Seasons 3 through 7, and all of Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Dennis, thank you for joining us today.
0: Hey, Justin. It's great to talk to you and, uh, and everyone.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful to, to have you here. You know, we've uh, interviewed people who have been involved in The Next Generation in different roles, actors, writers, directors, but, uh, costume designers, but this is the first time we've had someone who's done stunts and been the stunt coordinator, so that's kind of exciting for us.
0: Yeah, it, and I'm glad to be there. And uh, I remember my first day on The Generation. I came there just to work just one day, and it turned into 14 years and 389 episodes. So uh, it was incredible.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Actually, before we get into what you did in Star Trek, let's take a step back. So uh, tell us a little bit about you know, how your career in you know, acting and doing stunts got started.
0: Well, I am originally from South Plainfield, New Jersey, and I graduated from high school. And two weeks later, I came out to California with 52 bucks and two suitcases, and knew no one or anything. And I just wanted to be a stuntman, and I knew this was a place to go. And I found a, a great stuntman named Paul Stater, who was training young kids down in Santa Monica on Main Street, and there was about eight of us, and a year later, my career started to explode, and I started running shows when I was 19 years old, and it was just uh, an incredible start, you know, thanks to a lot of people that, that helped out.
1: Oh, wow. And you had mentioned that, um, you know, even before you came out to, to California to look for that kind of work, that, that you knew you wanted to do stunts. Was there something specific about it that uh, that appealed to you, or, you know, you just thought that was a cool thing to do?
0: Yeah, you know... I didn't even know what the word stunt or stuntman meant. I'm just a kid in New Jersey that was growing up, uh, but there was something, you know, about me that uh, I was jumping off my roof when I was five years old and climbing trees and jumping on the hood of the car and rolling down the stairs, and I was always doing these things, and uh, I knew I was getting attention that way, you know. Instead of talking, uh, I I did, you know, I I guess I was doing stunts as a – and my mom and dad, they thought, "Wow, there's something wrong with our son. He's throwing himself into walls and stuff." But you know, I just was meant to be a stuntman ever since you know I was a little kid. And and when I finally came out here and actually become a stuntman, uh, that's when my mom and dad realized, "Oh my gosh, he he was doing this since he was you know four years old." And you know, so it's kind of neat that sometimes uh, it's just in you and you know it, and you know what you're going to be doing. And and here we are still doing stunts and. Rolling downstairs and everything else.
1: Wow, that's really amazing that that's the kind of thing that you were you were doing when you were so young.
0: Yeah, and the odd thing was I really didn't know. And I remember my dad came to me. I was like nine years old. and I'm watching TV downstairs in New Jersey, and I'm watching some old James Cagney movie. And James Cagney was, you know, in a scene where he was, you know, beating up a bunch of people, like in a bar, barroom brawl. Or and my dad came downstairs. It was like ten o'clock at night. And he saw me really watching James Cagney beat up all these guys. And my dad said to me, you really like James Cagney? And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, do you want to be like James Cagney? And I thought about it, and I said, no, but I want to be those guys he's beating up. (laughs) Guess what? 10 years later, you know, 15 years later, full circle, I'm on the set at CBS Studios here in the Valley, and... James Cagney comes on the set. He's 80 years old. He's with his wife. He's in a wheelchair. He's under the weather. But he's a guest of the director, Burt Kennedy. And we're doing an episode, a movie of the week called The Return of Wawa West, starring Robert Conrad and Ross Martin. And it was like a remake of the old Wawa West TV show. And I see James Cagney. I went, oh, my gosh, that's James Cagney. And someone said, yeah, we're not allowed to go up to him. But, you know, and I said to myself, this is cool just seeing them because I was a kid watching them on TV and and suddenly it's time for me to put the wig on and I'm going to hit an air ram, a device that throws you 20 feet in the air. And I hit the air ram and I go 20 feet in the air and just eat the ground. I mean, just air out. Everyone's clapping. It was just, you know, a hard hit. It was what they wanted. I got up. I'm shaking my head because I hit my head a little bit, but I'm just shaking it. And they said, okay, that's lunch. And Dennis, that's a wrap. And some people are clapping. And, and suddenly out of nowhere, the bodyguard for James Cagney comes up to me. And he goes, Mr. Cagney would like to talk to you. I said, what? He goes, Mr. Cagney would like to talk to you. I walk over there. It's like slow motion. And his, James Cagney's wife lifts up the rope. I go under the rope. And she whispers in my ear, would you mind talking to my husband, James? And I went, oh my gosh. And I look at James Cagney, he's sitting down, he looks at me and suddenly he opens his eyes and he looks right at me. I go, oh my gosh, this is James Cagney. And he goes, sit down kid. And I sit right next to him. And he goes, what's that contraction? And oh my gosh, he says, it's really threw you for a dilly. And he's using all these 1920 words and, and suddenly I'm in this slow motion dreams. You know, it's like, is this happening? Am I with James? Am I sitting with? And suddenly I flash back to my dad, him saying, do you want to be like James Cagney? And I said, no, I want to be those guys he's beating up. And there was the circle. I look at Mr. Cagney. We talk a little more. I stand up. I shake his hand. I'm walking away. His wife whispers in my ear, thank you for talking to James. I said, no, my gosh, thank you. And there was the circle. I, I, I wasn't like James Cagney, but I got to get beat up right in front of him.
1: You know? Wow. I mean, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. Anyone that doesn't know James Cagney, Google him, look him up. He's an iconic, you know, actor. And, and, uh, it was so cool to actually meet him. That was one of the, the biggest moments of my whole life is to, you know, for him to ask for me to come over. And, you know, it was just incredible. So, uh. If you have something in you, go go for the journey because it's uh, it can take you to uh, meet some in- incredible people.
1: Yeah, wow. What a story. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so let's go to talking a little bit more about Star Trek. So before that first day and you were working on The Next Generation, uh, were you a Star Trek fan?
0: Oh, yeah. I was just, you know, toddler watching the original in the 60s, you know, late 60s, I was watching the show going, oh, my gosh, I just love the show. And I I love the action parts more than anything, but it was just uh, incredible uh, seeing those episodes. And then suddenly, I remember going to the first episode of The Next Generation. I went to see a friend of mine that was coordinating, I think, episode number one. His name is Glenn Wilder. He's a stunt coordinator and a, a great friend of mine that helped me in my career. So I went to Paramount to see him and he told me, he goes, Hey, um," he came out of the stage and I said, are you going to be doing the whole series? He goes, no, I'm just doing this one episode. It's kind of like directors are just bringing in their own coordinators. And uh, I remember being outside the stage of eight and not really being allowed to go in, you know, it was like a close set. So I so I hustled my friend Glenn and, and uh, walked away and it wasn't two weeks later, I got a call from Rob Bowman. He's directing episode three where no one has gone before. And he brought me in and uh, Rick Berman and David Livingston interviewed me to play that part and coordinate that stunt. And, you know, I got it. And then who knew they would ask me back for episode five and seven. And suddenly I asked him, I said, am I your stunt coordinator? And they go, yeah, this is your show. And it was like, oh, my gosh. And who knew that would turn into all these years and all those episodes. So.
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, out of curiosity, stunt coordinator, I mean, does that mean you're, you're coordinating things? Maybe you do the stunt. Maybe someone else does. Maybe the actor does. Like, how does that kind of work? A stunt coordinator is kind of like a director of all the action. And you, you get a script. You look
0: at all the stunts. You break it down. You sit with the director, find out what he wants and then you you give him your vision and also also other cool ideas so you're really like a director and you bring in all the stunt performers and as a stunt coordinator i was a performer so i i hogged everything i could i got on film all the time i would coordinate everybody and myself and uh so that's just me i just needed to and i still i still need to perform and Coordinate and direct the stunts. It's it's just how I am. I love doing all of that.
1: Okay. So actually, that kind of leads to a question that I want to to get to. So we do have a listener group on Facebook, uh, and we asked our listeners if they had questions for you. So I have a question here from uh, from Brian Narowski, um, and he asks. I know there was one episode of The Next Generation where Marina Sirtis did a stunt herself and was injured. Was performing stunts up to the actors?
0: Uh, no, it's really up to the stunt coordinator. And I remember that episode, and I remember her. And you know, I, she was wanted to, and it was taking a phaser hit and just falling back to you know, kind of like a dirt ground. Mm-hmm. And she did the close-up, but we had her fall on like a little two-inch pad but I think she realized like, Hey, this isn't stuff that, uh, you really need to train to do. And, uh, but no, I don't think she really got hurt, but I know that she, let's just say she realized uh, that throwing yourself up in the air and on the ground, isn't that easy, but he, she was watching her stunt girl do it and it looks easy, but it took a lot of training to make it look easy and make it look real. But, uh, yeah I remember that day clearly, and from there on in I, I think she trusted us to just let her know when she can do the little bits and pieces you know and not let her do anything risky
1: yeah that's that's really interesting because actually I've seen a video of marina Sirtis telling the the story, and I think she claims that she broke like her coccyx bone <laughs> uh so
0: it's funny because you know I don't think so, but uh it, but uh, I remember doing an Air Ram world record stunt where I landed. I went 28 feet and landed butt first on the concrete, and I probably did break my Ooh. my butt bone. Uh, but I never went in for x-rays or nothing. I just couldn't sit down for like a month. But uh, as you know, she might have, but uh, she was fine. Uh, she was fine. And she's handy too. And she's a, a great soul. She has great energy. She's never changed. She's always humble and kind, and she's an amazing person.
1: Yeah, so I'm kind of curious. Are there any you know favorite Star Trek episodes that you worked on, or you know memorable stunts or experiences?
0: At Deep Space Nine, uh, I played like this reoccurring. It was uh, behind the Looking Glass episodes, and uh, I played like a rebel with a one eye and long hair, and uh, I end up playing that character like in three different episodes, and that was a lot of fun to kind of be doing a reincurring type of role with, I was like a one eye rebel bandit, you know, I don't know. I just enjoyed that. But there's so many episodes that were so rewarding. So many great directors like Rick, Rick Kobe and um, uh, Rob Bowman and, and just David Livingston. Just, it's just a great journey. And uh, all the episodes were a lot of fun. If it was just one, one, Futuristic punch or big battle on Deep Space Nine. It didn't matter. I, I enjoyed all the days, but I'm sure there's some special episodes in there that, uh, that make me smile whenever I see them.
1: Yeah, so you mentioned working on Deep Space Nine. I know that you did work on Next Generation Deep Space Nine and Voyager. So for, between those three different shows, was it like how was it different working on those or was it kind of a similar feel or what was that like?
0: It felt the same because all the stages were. You know, across from each other, and so I'd run back and forth, and it was almost for me because I was doing all three shows, usually only two at one time. In my own coordinating mind, uh, all the actors from all the episodes they merged together, and for me, so for me they felt like they're all on the same ship, you know, you know, or it just felt the same because I'd run over there and I'd be with. With um Avery Brooks and Nana visitor, and I run over there, and I'm with Jonathan Frakes and and Brent, and it's just it didn't matter to me as it felt the same, you know. Even though, but I handled the shows differently. I'd have different type of fights on one, and different type of uh, energy on the other. g Space Line was more of a lot of battles, and Generation was more of a uh, less battles, but they still got it caught in some jams and. Voyager was was different in its own you know but uh, all the actors were just tremendous and and uplifting and they all were handy I mean when they came out doing stunts with their own little pieces they were really really handy and again all of them every actor was amazing and friendly and giving so what you see on film is what you really get You, you see those kind people and that's how they are in life
1: so, I mean, you mentioned a couple of times actors being handy. Like, what does that mean? Like, in terms of of yeah,
0: fighting stunts, doing a lot of their own little bits until it gets to a point where somebody has to really hit the ground. Um, just yeah, handy that way as an athletic, good fighters. They did a lot of their own good, good action.
1: Okay. I, I actually, I'm kind of curious about one thing because something that we've heard from people that have worked on some of the different shows is that on the set of the, the Next Generation, often between takes, they were having fun and laughing and singing and all that. And it, on Deep Space Nine, it tended to be more serious. Is that something that that you saw that kind of difference in kind of how it was between takes?
0: I don't know. I think I always see maybe the generation might have been more, and uh, because it was the beginning. Of those three shows Um, And there was a lot more I don't know, maybe the first Season one, two, and three On The Next Generation Everyone was just having a good time And that's what formed the family And that's why when we still see each other uh, Years later, feel like family You know, when you spend seven years With a crew and actors and producers And for me, I I spent, you know uh, 21 seasons with all different crew and actors, but it seemed like the same crew was always around when they can get everyone. It was, it was a family thing. They never let anybody go. They really kept, and maybe that was it, that they always kept everyone around. Even if there was difficult moments, they, they would work it out and make those moments work again. And they never let anybody go. And I, I love that part that they were, uh, kept it like a family. And maybe that's why there was a lot of fun, but I think there was fun on, on all of them. I think they all horsed around and and had fun. Uh, maybe a little more on generation, but uh, I I always saw when I was there, it was always a lot of happy energy.
1: Okay, yeah, that's great to hear. So I have another listener question here. This is from Ruby Elizabeth, and uh, she asks, "What type of scene was the most challenging to create stunts for?" Hey,
0: Ruby. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think, they all were. Um, I don't know. I use the word challenge for me. Um, When I see something, I read it. I just automatically fall into it and can't wait to talk to the director to make sure that I'm on the right page with him and to create these battle scenes or fights or ratchets or high falls or whatever's needed to help sell what's in the script. Uh, I think the only thing challenging (laughs) if I named one thing on the show was uh, maybe Deep Space Nine because they use so much smoke every day on the set, almost every, every, every day, that after years and years of breathing in the, the mist that they make, the smoke to make it look, give it that texture for film, uh, I think that was challenging to put on all that makeup, coordinate all the battles, be in the battles, and breathe all that stuff for 18 hours a day. You know, uh, so to me, uh, it got to a point with maybe after five years at Space 9 where that became a challenge uh, to be able to do all that and not get uh, sick, you know, because you, it just gets to you from lack of sleep, breathing the smoke, you know, putting all those battles together. But the smoke, I remember one time it was so smoky, I couldn't even see the camera, you know, and finally someone said, somebody open some doors, we can't even see anyone anymore so <laughs> uh so the smoke was a challenge, I think for uh, the actors too, because it does get into your lungs, whatever that chemical is, or you know they always say it's safe, but you know, but as for putting stuff together uh stunt wise, it was always just a fun journey to be creative, so not mu- not so much a challenge.
1: okay, no, that's really interesting. I guess I hadn't thought about Deep space nine being a a smokier set, I just hadn't even thought about that but yeah there can be like a lot of battles and things exploding right
0: yeah yeah and they did that on generation when they were in the planet scenes and you know the only time they didn't do smoke was when they were interior but when it came to all the battles that we were doing uh they would just smoke it up pretty thick and give it that rich rich texture but um uh, you know it does take a toll on uh on the crew and I i must say that in my career of being at Paramount for 14 years, it was easy for me to go to the sets and really have great energy because I, I didn't do what the crew did. They were there every day. You know, I was there when we did battles and stunts and, uh, and they would always get excited because I'd always bring that, you know, fresh energy, you know, to uplift the crew really, because I'd show up all fresh and they would worked five days in a row. Right. And, uh, so that was kind of cool that I was able to, Bring in some good energy. And I think the crew used to get excited. All right, we're going to do a battle today. Yeah. And so, but hats off to the crew and producers and writers and everyone that really worked so hard to put all these shows, you know, in in history for people to see for all the time to come.
1: Yeah. So I'm kind of curious was there ever something where you got a script for a Star Trek episode and you were thinking, I'm not sure how we're going to do this stunt? Was there ever something that? you just weren't sure it would just kind of always come to you the best way to do it. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm the, uh, I see the glass, uh, pretty full, not half empty. So anything I read, I can't wait to read it and know, Oh, this is how we're going to do it because everything can be done. Sometimes you just do it to make it safe. You do it in two different cuts instead of doing it in one cut and taking a chance. So there's, there's ways to do everything and just, just make sure you do it safe. And that's my concern was, If we were doing one punch or a 50-foot high fall, I took that serious, you know. uh, Until we've completed it and we're on our way home, then we celebrate and grab a yuho or you know a soda uh, and just celebrate. But I I'm I I always take everything serious, even if it's just one punch, because we want everyone to make it home and have a good day.
1: Yeah, that's great. So I have another listener question here, and it's from Brian Malosh, and he saw that you have the nickname Danger, and he wondered how you got that nickname, and would you prefer having a different one if you could choose a different one?
0: Hey, Brian, you can't give yourself a nickname. This is what I found out in the world. You can't give yourself a nickname. Someone else has to do it. And one day, I did a world record motorcycle jump in Florida. Jumped a bike one hundred and twenty feet, gosh, thirty feet in the air over the ocean and into the ocean on fire and a week later I'm on another show with Robert Conrad uh, in Chicago, and we're in a bar i don 't drink by the way, but we're in a bar, and I'm having a coca cola with with the crew and everyone and Robert Conrad and Chuck Courtney and all these cool people and they open up this national choir, and in the national choir was an article about Robert Conrad, the actor. And it was like an inch big. And suddenly he flips over to the center and there's two full pages of me jumping my motorcycle and it says, risking life and limb for Diana Shore, you know, Dennis Matalone. And Robert Conrad looked at it and goes, well, excuse me, Mr. Danger, danger, danger. And all night <laughs> long, And that's all I kept hearing. Danger, danger, danger. So a month later, I'm in, I'm in uh, San Francisco doing this crazy car chase. And out of nowhere, this electrical truck pulls in front of me. I don't know how it got through the barrier. And I hit my brakes, almost hit this truck. And I'm two inches from the truck. And there's an electrical sign on the back of it saying, keep back 10 feet, danger. And that was it. A month later, I came out with T-shirts. And on the back of it said, keep back 10 feet, danger. And uh, it took off from there. And I remember... 20 years later, I started some new shows at Warner Brothers. And I said, I'm not going to tell people about my nickname. And about a month later, the executive producer goes, hey, Danger, come here. I go, everybody knows. There's no getting away. So that's it. You just get a nickname from someone and they just keep saying it until it it becomes true. You know, I remember I was up for a a movie The Week about 15 years ago. And the director goes, oh, I'd love to hire you. But your nickname is Danger and i said yes i make it look dangerous but it's safe and he said okay you're hired and that was it so <laughs> so that's it it's just so I, I now and then i try to give some people nicknames because they ask me how do i get a nickname and i go someone has to just start calling you something and i i do that now and then i try to give nicknames to some guys so
1: okay great now that's that's very interesting to hear that. And I think you are right. It tends to be people will give you a nickname. You can't just give one to yourself and hope people go with it. <laughs> it just has to be natural. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's just something happens. And some, usually you get the nickname, like in high school, my last name is Matt Alone, So people called me Madman or Mad Dog because I was doing all these sports and I was I was crazy, crazy energy. So and then, gosh, I did a show a couple of months ago and um, out of nowhere, the UPM called me Mad Dog. And I said, oh my gosh, that's what they called me in high school. So it's weird that that would come back, you know. It was like, cool. I said, hey, I like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I have another listener question here. So I know that uh, you had mentioned in addition to stunts, you did play um, some small roles as, as characters. So Stuart Davies asks, uh, you played several alien characters on Star Trek. Which was the biggest pain makeup-wise? <clears> hmm, <throat>
0: trying to think. Gosh, I don't know. I was, I was liking them all. And then I think the one I got used to the most was Klingons. They became more easier to me than Jehemadar because Jehemadar, you wear the whole headpiece and heavier boots and leather. And when you go work outside in a rock quarry, and it's 118 degrees and you're wearing all that, you you just can barely walk, you know, you just overheat it and your brain is getting cooked. And so Jehemadar on a hot day, or a smoky day on the stage was a little tougher because there because was so much rubber we were wearing on our face, you know, and the suits were heavy. And, but they all were enjoyable um, to, to play. Um, I loved playing Starfleet guys on um, Space 9 I played about four or five Starfleets. And I remember Ira Bear came up to me. And he goes, didn't we just kill you last week? <laughs> I said, yeah, but uh, I'm the twin brother. And he goes, he laughed and he goes, okay. And then next week I'm wearing a blonde wig instead of my brown hair. And he looked at me, he goes, uh, let me guess, you're a cousin? I go, yeah. And he <laughs> laughed. So they really let me get on film so much and push the boundaries of being seen maybe a little too much. And that was cool that they just let me keep performing as well as coordinating.
1: Yeah. In fact, like when I was looking up information on on what you've done on on Star Trek, there's this um, uh, wiki site called Memory Alpha that just has really comprehensive information about the different people who play the different characters, different characters and episodes. And under your name, it, uh, for characters, usually it'll list you know some characters that, that people have played. And for yours, it just said too many to list.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny, Fuddy. I can't even imagine how many times I was on film playing characters, uh, but probably 150. Different times, I different episodes, maybe even 200 that I got in there. You can't really see me on the Klingons, uh, uh, but somehow the fans know, and that's how I keep getting listed. They, in fact, uh, there's a fan base for the last 20 years. They send me pictures of of frozen shots of lots of stunt people and myself, and they want me to answer the question: Who is this? Who is this? Who doubled this? Who is it? So I probably answered, you know, a thousand questions to help fill that database of faces that are Klingon and Jamadars and faces that they really can't quite figure out. So, uh, uh, But I always know. Yeah, I just always remember the moments and the episodes and who was who. And I can tell by the eyes or the nose. I got a big Italian nose, so it's easy to discover me, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like well as star trek fans were interested in all the little little minutia and little details actually like on the on the page it says too many to list but if you click on it it does actually like list it out they just can't do it on the main page and it's just so many <laughs> i mean and i think they've documented probably all of them but it's just like dozens and dozens and dozens it's really something
0: yeah i love getting stuff from the fans and they send me where they discovered me photos and stuff and I love signing them and mailing back, and I usually add other goodies. I have over 400 scripts, and I've probably given away over 200 to fans uh, that have found me or reached out to me. Uh, I sign what they sent me, and I usually send them a script and pretty much freak them out. Uh, it's like, oh my gosh! I send them the real script that I actually <laughs> wrote on, on the set. So, so I love sharing uh, all that and giving back to everybody.
1: Wow, that's that's really great. I mean, speaking of, of fans, I'm curious, have you ever attended any Star Trek conventions?
0: I did a lot. Uh, somewhere in the middle of my eighth, ninth, tenth season, I was doing a lot out of town and, and locally out here in Pasadena, uh, where I'd bring the stunt team and we do big Klingon battles and it just, yeah. You,
1: you, you would like reenact battles like at the convention?
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. I mean, you know, where they make us up and the whole scoop. Uh so so we've been to a lot of big ones. I haven't done them recently, but I'd love to do them again. They're just fun to do questions and answers and and even do some stunts if I can get the team together. So it's um yeah, we'd love to do them again. I I I miss doing them. They were they were a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of, uh, one that I was thinking of in particular that I've started going to the last couple of years is Star Trek Las Vegas, which is the biggest Star Trek convention in the US. And that's been going on for, I don't know, 18 years or something. Did you ever attend one of those?
0: Yeah, I think I did them probably about, you know, 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, but nothing since. because I got really busy mm. co- uh, coordinating a lot of features and other TV series. But uh, yeah, right now I'm kind of, I just did a feature and a couple of rock videos. A short, and so I've got time. So uh, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to do them again. They're just, they're just a lot of fun.
1: Well, I I may reach out to the company that uh, puts these together just to make a suggestion because it'd be great to (laughs) to see you at something like that again.
0: Yeah, if anyone called me, I, I would, I would go. It'd be fun.
1: Excellent. Yeah, and speaking of things outside of Star Trek, I was curious if you could talk about any, you know, favorite experiences you've had in, you know, stunts and acting outside of Star Trek.
0: Experience, wow. I've done a lot of world record stunts, air rams to concrete, a uh, motorcycle jump into the ocean, uh, 150 foot high fall on a feature film called Inside Moves. I got to work with the great Stephen J. Cannell. Um, I got to work with so many cool actors and cool. P- so, you know, it's always been an amazing journey. I think everyone is special and uh, all the gags we did. And, uh, you know, it's a journey for some people. Sometimes they never leave. You know, uh, I remember hiring stunt people that were in their 80s uh, on Star Trek. And mm-hmm. so stunt people like to keep working. And, uh, and that's me. You know, I'm just still doing all the tricks and, and going to sets and, and creating cool stuff for the directors. And so, uh, you know, so the journey continues and there's uh, more happy sets to go to.
1: Yeah, now you've got me thinking about that one where there were stunt people in the '80s for in their '80s for a Star Trek episode. I was wondering like what that was or what happened in that episode.
0: Yeah, well, I'll tell you the stunt man. His name is Wally Rose. When I was a kid, he helped me uh, bust into business, and he was older. In fact, he used to be the stunt coordinator for the Three Stooges. Okay. Oh wow! Back in <laughs> the 1930s, like 90 years ago, he loved me and my wife Linda, and, and we were like his adopted God, you know, children, I guess, you know? And, uh, so I always hired him all the time. Uh, my career exploded. I used him all the time and sometimes for stunts and sometimes have him there uh, for safety and, and use his knowledge and, and his, his, his talent to, uh, make sure, uh, you know, help, help me lead the way when I was young to make sure I'm doing the right thing when I put stunts together, make sure I'm safe. And so, you know, he was one of my mentors and, uh, so, uh, yeah, he was on a lot of Star Treks uh, helped me out. And I remember someone came up to me on D Space 9 the UPM, and he goes, I know you got all your guys all the time, but that gentleman there, he's like 80-something years old, and he's your safety guy. I said, that's right. He's, a, he's my advisor, and he makes sure I keep everyone safe when we do this high fall over the rail. And, and he just smiled at me and goes, you know, okay. Because you know, when they look at the paperwork in at Paramount, they're looking at someone 80 years old on the set, right? <laughs> you know, and yeah. they get worried, but you know, they were nice enough to trust me and, and have my team, no matter what the ages were or creed or color or nothing. So I, I was, I used everybody. Didn't matter skin color or religion or woman guy, 80 years old or 18 years old. It didn't matter. And uh, and I think Paramount really loved me for that, for for being that kind of person to, See everybody equal.
1: Wow, that's great. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious are there things you like to do, you know, outside of stunt work, hobbies or interests that you have?
0: Yeah, I love fame and shape. So I'm either playing tennis or I'm, uh, I played in a stunt league and in, in a celebrity TV show, stunt league as a pitcher for I don't know what, 12 years. I love competing. I remember practicing pitching. When we were on the D space nine set, when we had a twenty minute break because we had a big game for the weekend, I'd be practicing pitching right before a big battle. On you know, so I love doing sports. That's what brought me out here. I was a, a pole vaulter and a wrestler and a football player in high school, and broke the school record in pole vault, and that's what made me believe uh, I could come out here and be a stuntman. So I'm still that athlete. And I think being a good athlete and staying in shape. Uh, gives you longevity in this business, you know, and so I'm still doing that. So I'm lifting weights and I'm running the beach and part time I'm coaching uh, Calabasas High School. I, I coach the pole Volters on the team. So I'm staying around all the athletics, you know, which is cool.
1: Excellent. Okay, so tell us about any current or upcoming work you'd like to let our listeners know about.
0: Well, there's a feature film that I just coordinated called boy behind the door for whitewater productions or whitewater films. And, uh, it just, we just finished shooting about three weeks ago and it's a feature film. It's kind of like a bit of a haunted house and a couple of kids trying to get away, but we did a lot of cool stunts and it was with some a dual directing team, David and Justin and with some great producers, Rick Rosenthal. And, uh, the actors were tremendous and it was just a lot of fun. I had a lot of my stunt people on it. We did some cool things. And so that film is probably going to come out later in the year. So you may want to keep your eyes on that boy behind the door.
1: Okay, great. Is, is that the one that you were working on? I think when one of the times that I had reached out to you and you were busy for a while.
0: Yeah. And I was doing that film day and night and also coaching the kids. And it was like, you know, it was sort of almost 24 hours a day of nonstop. But uh, it's great to have that energy to be able to do all that. But that's why I needed a little time out when I finished because I like was running back and forth for six weeks. I also worked on uh, Fast and the Furious 8 and a feature film called Venom that came out uh, last summer uh, for a friend of mine, Spiro Lozadas, who is a great director and stunt director. And uh, so I've been doing a lot of features and, and coordinating, my, coordinating my own stuff and um, I coordinated TV for like, um, 33 TV seasons. So I've had a great run on TV and, uh, you never know when I, am going to go back right now. I'm love, I love doing the features and uh movie the weeks and other things. And, you know, we'll see if I get back on TV again. Uh, if so, uh, I usually get lucky and it, it runs for seven years or more. So we'll see what happens.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Actually, that brings me to a question I, uh, probably should have asked earlier. Like, what's the difference when you're doing stunts or coordinating stunts between like a feature film and a, a TV series? How is it different or is it all that different?
0: You know, for me, see, uh, coordinating the TV or rock video or a short film or a major feature film, for me, it's the same thing. I read something, I, I see it where it fits in the story of the stunt that we need to do. Uh, I create things in my head that fit the script and the dialogue, and I hook up with the director right away. So it doesn't matter, and if they have little money, no money, or a lot of money, I'm still going to do the stunt the same way. I'm going to go as big as we can, keep everyone as safe as we can, and do some cool stuff. So for me, I treat them all the same. It's funny, because sometimes I do TV, and they go, oh... And then suddenly I'll go do a feature. And they go, well, you're a TV coordinator. I go, that doesn't matter. And then I'll do a few features in a row and I'll go back to TV. And they go, well, you do features. So you're not used to the pace of TV. I go, no, I'm fast on every set, (laughs) you know. And so it's funny how I hear that sometimes. But it makes no difference to a true stunt coordinator. You treat it all the same. And, And even if they have no money and you're going to help a student out. We go big. We get the best stunt people in the world, and we get on the set, and we perform, and we get a free lunch, and we go home happy because we did the performance, because it doesn't matter if you pay us, because that money's going to be gone within a week. What matters is the journey, making friends, and creating something cool that people can watch and embrace uh, now and years from now. And so that's the true performer. It doesn't matter if it's for free or, or you're paying us. We're we're going to perform and do some cool stuff.
1: Wow, that's that's a great attitude, and I think it's wonderful that you're still you know doing all this work with what you love to do.
0: Yeah, no, I I my energy is is you know for me it feels like the '80s still, so it doesn't you know I get around with my friends a lot. And, uh, we do a bunch of gags and we talk, and I say, yeah, we're keeping the '80s alive, you know but uh, we're keeping the nineties alive. It doesn't matter. We're just keeping that energy going, you know, just I'm look, we're all kids. It doesn't matter if you're 80 years old or 90, we're still the same kid. We're still those same kids from high school and we need to keep being those same kids. There, there is no age in that, you know, no one should, there should be no numbers when it comes to looking at somebody or judging them. You know, everyone should just run around have fun and, and do some good things, and and be the kids that we are.
1: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So, Dennis, let our listeners know where they can find you online.
0: Well, I do have a website. It's called, you can go to dennismatalone.com, M-A-D-A-L-O-N-E.com, dennismatalone.com, or you can go to AmericaWeStandAsOne, O-N-E, dot com, That's uh, where I have a song that I wrote and performed that we let out because of 9-11. It's a beautiful song. So I kind of have a website there and people can email me from there. And uh, I've been giving that song out for free as a gift for 15 years. So uh, uh, anyone can go there and email me from there. And uh, if you want a song, I'll send it out to you or, or Star Trek, Goody or whatever. So that's a good way to reach me.
1: Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today, Dennis. It was great interviewing you and finding out more about the world of of stunts and what was going on on Star Trek Next Generation, Deep Space 9, and Voyager.
0: Hey, Justin, it was great talking to you and and everyone out there and I look forward to talking to you again.
1: Okay. Thanks so much. Well, that was a really great interview with Dennis Madalone who did so many stunts and roles and everything and he had lots of great stories, so Hope you guys enjoyed the interview and a preview of next week's episode. So we're having Joe Keegan back on for the Science of TNG part two. So be sure to listen in for that for more on the Science of TNG. Well, it's been so much fun talking with Dennis Madalone about acting and stunts today. But that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast.
0: He's like, oh, we can't be vague. And he's like, I'm not doing it. Is that vague enough for you? Yeah. That was so great.
1: I know. Yes. Tyler's having these little quip answers, quick-witted, you know, when he's talking with George O. And she's like, I'm going to trust you. But if you betray my trust, I'm going to hunt you down. Literary Treks. And we have the USS Titan, and they're, they're going so far as to make modifications to people's quarters and the different living arrangements to account for various alien physiologies and all that sort of thing. Because not only do we have just a diversity of alien species, we have a diversity of people who aren't even humanoid, which I think is a really cool thing and something You know, you can do that in a book at the time more easily than you could on television, for sure. So I think they make really good use of the medium to present us with a crew like this. Warp 5. Because he had a near-death experience, he's now all of a sudden upset that T'Pol won't admit her feelings for him.
0: Right. Right. And look, I can understand how the near-death experience triggers that, but this the payoff of him asking to leave should have happened three episodes from now. Yes,
1: he should be grown up enough. Earl Grey. I mean, of course, the difference with Geordi and Data is that they're regular characters and they're in almost every episode. <laughs> so there's more of that potential for interaction and Guinan isn't in it as many. And I know it wouldn't have been as possible at the time, but I can dream about the next generation starting with Guinan being like a regular there every week. I mean, hey, you know, Quark's a bartender and he's a regular on DS9. Why not Guinan?
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: Let's go back in time and change that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the mp3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send you a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreoncom trekfm. That's p a t r e o n.com/checkfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, the Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, Chris Tribuzio, Joe Keegan, and Jim McMahon. Thank you for supporting Trek FM, and especially Earl Grey. So, join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Things are only impossible until they're not.